grace and peace from God our Father through Jesus Christ our Lord to all of you. Uh, so good to be with you today, even though it is in these unusual circumstances indeed. Everyone keeps using the word unprecedented in light of what's happened, and uh, in many ways that is the case. But it really is such a privilege to be here. I praise God for your pastor, uh, Lucas. Uh, he's uh, become a dear friend and brother in Christ, and it is a joy and a privilege to open God's Word, especially in the book of Obadiah. Before I read this short but powerful book in its entirety, which will only take us about five minutes, as it is the shortest of all the minor prophets, let me give you a brief introduction to set the book of Obadiah up. Keep in mind that God's people who first heard the vision of Obadiah would have been more steeped in the Scriptures than probably most of us are. The traditions of the Old Testament, particularly the Hebrew Bible, and especially the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, would have been imprinted on the minds and hearts of the people of God. They would have been familiar with the story of Jacob and Esau. Genesis 25-36 through 36 details this relationship between these two twin brothers. And so all the way back in Genesis 25, 30, uh, 23, we read this. The Lord said to her, that's Rebekah, the wife of Isaac, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. In our day, we think often of family feuds. Perhaps you have one of those in your own life. A relative you've not talked to in a long time. When you think of this person, they genuinely harmed you. They hurt you. There's bitterness that you have towards them. Oh, we see that there's nothing new under the sun. There was conflict and division promised between these two twin brothers while they were in the womb. And this is an unusual promise as well. That the older would serve the younger brother. See, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, and in the Hebrew culture in particular, the firstborn son usually had this special position of privilege. And the younger siblings would serve that older, that firstborn son. One Old Testament scholar notes that this is a family feud that is known for its intensity. Things get more personal. They're more potent. They are seared on the memory and in the hearts and minds of people. And we know from the beginning that Jacob, indeed, the younger twin brother, took his brother by the heel in the womb. That's what Hosea 12.3 tells us. So these two twin brothers, Jacob and Esau, are already from the outset promised an unusual relationship. Rebekah gives birth to these two twin boys. First Esau, who was hairy. He was red. He was a hunter. And he seemed to be his favorite, uh, the favorite rather of the father, Isaac. Jacob, on the other hand, the younger of the twin brothers, his name means heel or he grabs the heel. It could also mean he cheats as well. And sure enough, their relationship, Esau and Jacob, 
their relationship is marked by strife. So you might remember back in Genesis 25 that Esau is starving. He's coming back from a hunt. They're older now. He's coming back from a hunt and he's starving. He said he's going to die. And Jacob says, sell me your birthright and I'll give you some stew. And Esau, without thinking, essentially sells his birthright on the spot to Jacob for a pot of stew. Now years later, Esau would say that he was tricked. He was deceived. And there might be an element to this. But Esau continued down this path of reckless living. When he was 40 years old, Esau took two Hittite women to be his wives that caused his father Isaac and his mother Rebekah bitterness. When Isaac is older, he calls then Esau to himself, and you'll remember this story as well. He says, go out, son, hunt me some game, cook it in the way I like it, and then I will give you the blessing. Well, his mother, Rebecca, overhears the elderly Isaac, her husband, saying this to Esau. And she then goes to her younger son, Jacob, and she says to him, I will prepare this meal. You go in. You get the blessing from your father. So while Esau is away hunting, Jacob, who does not feel like his brother at all, he's not hairy, disguises himself with his mother's help to be like the hairy brother Esau. His mom cooks the meal. Jacob goes into his father. And his father, who apparently was blind, says he hears the voice of Jacob, but then he touches his son's neck and his son's arms, and he says, but you're hairy like Esau. And so he gives the blessing to his younger son. And this is the tension that continues to boil over because moments after getting that blessing, Jacob then leaves, Esau comes in. He has hunted the game for his father. He has prepared the meat for his father. And his father said, who are you? And he said, I'm Esau. And Isaac, and especially Esau, weep. Esau weeps because he knows that there's no blessing left for him anymore. Jacob has taken his blessing. Well, Rebecca, their mother, overhears Esau, whose grief has turned to rage. He is infuriated that his younger twin brother has stolen his blessing. And he says, I will murder my brother. And the comforting thought to him that soothed him over, that caused him great joy, was that I will murder my brother. Do you see this tension that's mounting? Can you sense it? This dramatic story we have in the Old Testament of two brothers, Esau the older, and Jacob the younger. There's deceit. There's a desire for murder. There's emotion, bitterness, cruelty. And so if you belong to God's people, you would have known this story. You would have known Genesis and you would have been familiar with this. And you have to even go back a little bit further and realize though what's at stake One Old Testament scholar puts it this way, the tensions between brothers 
Jacob and Esau, seem to threaten the fulfillment of the divine promise to send a Savior. You understand what's at stake, friends. If Esau murders Jacob, if Jacob flees and perhaps is murdered himself by foreigners, what will become of the promise the Lord made to His people to bring deliverance, to bring Messiah? Well, Jacob flees his brother, and there's questions everywhere. Where, will he be safe? Where will he go? Esau wants to kill him. Many years later, after they are older, after many other things occur in both of their lives, the Lord tells us the story that seems to bring somewhat of a, revolution, a resolution rather, to the tension between these two brothers. In Genesis 32, Jacob starts to return to the land that he came from. But he's fearful, he's greatly distressed thinking of what his older brother Esau would do to him. And then in Genesis 32, the two brothers finally do meet and they embrace. Old Testament scholar Nelson Price notes this, Though their hostility was personally resolved, their descendants continue to this day, to struggle against each other. Esau and Jacob. Jacob becomes the nation of Israel. Esau becomes the nation of Edom. The story of two brothers that becomes the story of two families, of two clans, of two nations is on display. And though their personal differences seem to be set aside, there continues to be, throughout history, this tension between Israel, Jacob's descendants, and Edom, Esau's descendants. The Lord actually gives instructions to His people, the people of Israel, the people of God. He says in Deuteronomy 23.7, You shall not abhor the Edomites, for they are your brother. At times, they fought alongside one another against their enemies. But they also had bitter fights against one another as well throughout history, exercising their superiority over one another. There was this ongoing tension and infighting between these two tribes, these two people groups that were supposed to be like brethren. With this in mind now, hear the word of the Lord as we come to the book of Obadiah. If you are able, would you please stand now for the reading of God's Word. Obadiah. It's only 21 verses, so we're able to read this most minor of all the minor prophets. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up! Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? 
If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Temnin, so that every man from Mount Esau shall be cut off by slaughter because of the violence done to your brother Jacob. Shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow, and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. And the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them. And there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negeb shall possess Mount Esau, and those of Shepela shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem, Horin Sophrad, shall possess the cities of the Negeb. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The vision of Obadiah. Who was Obadiah? Obadiah means servant of the Lord. According to one study Bible, there are at least 11 figures in the Old Testament with this name. So obviously there's been some difficulty determining exactly who or what period of time this is referring to. The dating for this book has not always been agreed upon, even amongst Bible-believing Christians. Some would say the 9th century seems to mirror the events that are happening here better than any other period of time. Others would argue for the 6th century. And the reason for this is because the nature of what is happening here and what happened to Judah in 587 when Babylon came and took God's people in the southern kingdom captive. The books of Jeremiah and Lamentations have many parallels. 
much of the similar content representing what's found here in Obadiah. And so while it's not always easy to determine the exact period of time when this took place, what is much, much more clear is what actually happened and why it happened. So today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I want us to look at three phrases from the book of Obadiah. Three phrases from the book of Obadiah. The first is the pride of your heart. The second is the day of the Lord. And the third is the kingdom shall be the Lord's. The pride of your heart, the day of the Lord, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Now to be sure, each one of these we could take up multiple weeks preaching sermons on. We'll look mainly at the content and the context of the book of Obadiah. No doubt you've already heard probably in your sermon series on the Minor Prophets this phrase, the day of the Lord. So I won't spend a ton of time on that other than to highlight what Obadiah uniquely focuses upon. First though, the pride of your heart. I wonder, friends, do you know the nature of pride? Do you know the nature of pride? Have you studied your own heart? Have you found pride that you have repented of and put to death on a daily basis? See, friends, pride always leads to pain. It always leads to destruction. It always leads to further sin. Look at Obadiah 1.10. It says this, that Edom's prideful sin led them to this, to violence done to their brother Jacob. And the consequence of that pride is that they would be cut off forever. Don't miss this. Don't skip past this. The sins of the heart lead to being cut off forever. The sins of the heart lead to being cut off forever. It was true for Edom and it will be true for all people who do not repent of their pride and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Edom's sin of pride are detailed in the first nine verses here of Obadiah. Pride is an insidious sin of our hearts. The late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce once wrote of pride that the root of pride is saying we can do without God. Pride says I'm secure enough on my own. I can disregard God. I can set aside His holy word. Yet Edom's prideful heart would so consume her that the nation of Israel would cry out to God to remember how prideful and arrogant they had been. In Psalm 137, verse 7, in a song of praise, song of lament to God, the Israelites would cry out these words, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to the foundation." See, what led the Edomites, who were supposed to be brothers of Israel, to cry out for their destruction was their pride. As Babylon marched through this world superpower and desecrated Judah, the people of God in the southern kingdom, their neighbors to the east, the Edomites, looked at them and mocked and cheered and clapped. 
No, friends, pride is a sin that in some ways can be covered up, but that always leads to further suffering. Pride is the sin that turned Lucifer, the angel, into the devil and drove him, cast him out of the presence of God from heaven. Pride was the sin that destroyed Adam and Eve, who the devil had lied to, when he said, when you eat this fruit, you will be like God. But pride, as Obadiah tells us, deceived the nation of Edom. And pride can do the same to all of us. It can deceive and it can destroy all of us. What pride does is it always brings death. It always divides you up. It always destroys. And don't miss this. Pride cannot be protected. Pride cannot be protected. The Lord of the universe, He sees it all. And He hates all pride. So the Lord tells us in Proverbs 16.5 that, quote, He detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. That's true for Israel. That's true for every man, every woman, every boy, every girl. The Lord detests the proud of heart. And they will not go unpunished. See, Edom thought that they were significant and protected. But the Lord says in verse 2 of Obadiah, I will make you small. You are utterly despised. Edom apparently thought of themselves as high and mighty in a strategic fortification. Verse 3 mentions that they live in the clefts of the rock. Or Selah. This place of great protection. So they're looking down upon people as they come up. Remember, this is a day when they don't have airplanes. They don't have helicopters. And so people would need to climb up the rocks. Needham thinks of themselves as in a position of fortification. They they can't be touched. But the Lord says, from there, from this place where you seem to soar as an eagle on the heights, from there, as you think of yourselves as being high amongst the stars, with a nest high in the sky, from there, the Lord says, I will bring you down. See, in the case of Edom, they had this pride in their hearts that deceived them. They looked at their brother Judah, and they did not come to their aid. But it's not that they simply turned a blind eye. They cheered on the destruction of Judah. And so pride leads to other sins. Can you imagine? Can you think of Edom, the Edomites? At least it's not happening to us. Look how safe we are. But it's even worse whenever you understand the context of Judah's pain. Old Testament scholar Daniel Block vividly writes these words, quote, Judah's painful experiences are almost unimaginable. Over an 11-year period, survivors witness successively the Babylonian invasion, the deportation of the upper classes, the raising of Jerusalem and the temple, the slaughter of the population, and the scattering of the survivors. Meanwhile, Block says, the Edomites, descendants of Esau, and distant cousins of the Israelites also abandoned them. Instead of standing up for their brothers, they participated in the crimes against Jerusalem and Judah. 
and they clapped enthusiastically as the nation was being destroyed. I know that you probably have some family feuds in here in history that are awful, that are filled with pain. But I can't imagine too many of you clapping as your brother, as your cousin is being murdered right before your eyes. That's the picture that's supposed to be seared on your mind and hearts through the book of Obadiah. It's appalling and it's rooted in pride. Edom stood pridefully, far off, unwilling to come to the aid of Israel, of Judah, but also encouraged the plunder and participated in the plunder herself. Look at Obadiah 8 through 11. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, here it is, you were like one of them. You were like one of them. What led the Edomites to this place of celebrating the murder of their cousins, of their brethren, what led the Edomites to enter the cities and to steal and to plunder their defeated friends and neighbors was pride, the pride of their heart. All this evil that Edom committed, all the unspeakable acts of wickedness that they participated in were rooted ultimately in pride. Friends, make no mistake though, the pride that destroyed Edom is the same pride that will destroy each and every human being who does not repent of their sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That leads us to a second important phrase. The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Follow along with me again as I read from Obadiah 15 and 16. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow, and shall be as though they had never been. Well, what's going on here? One of my Old Testament professors at Trinity one time said that the books of the Bible we tend to avoid the most are often the ones we may need the most. I'm so glad that you are in the Minor Prophets this summer because I have found that the Minor Prophets are easy to skip by, to gloss over. There's a lot of language that we don't use today. I mean, when was the last time in your own life you heard language like in verse 16, drinking on my holy mountain? Most of us, we are so far removed from that, we're not sure what's going on. But it seems that Edom and perhaps Babylon, and perhaps other nations who had participated in the plunder of Judah, had gone up to Mount Jerusalem, had gone up where God's people met with the Lord. 
the temple, the place where sacrifices were made, the place where God's people were supposed to gather to hear from Him, to learn from the Scriptures, to repent and to worship God. This holy place where only priests were supposed to enter, this holy place with holy utensils and a holy setup that much in the Old Testament detailed with very, very clear specificity. This holy place was desecrated by pagans who did not fear God. Perhaps they were taking some of the utensils out of the temple. They were getting drunk off the wine. They were mocking everything in this place that was supposed to be holy. And yet the Lord, through Obadiah, expands the judgment from a particular people, namely Edom, to all the nations. Verse 15 tells us, The day of the Lord is near upon all nations. And what Obadiah uniquely brings us when it comes to the day of the Lord is what that day will entail. I wonder if someone asked you, what is the day of the Lord, how you might answer. What's the day of the Lord? It's really important for us as Christians to be able to do what the Lord calls us to in 1 Peter 3, 16. To honor Christ the Lord as holy in our hearts and always be prepared to give a defense, to give an answer for the reason for the hope within us. Only to do this with gentleness and respect. And one of the key themes throughout the Old and the New Testament is this idea of the day of the Lord. As you reach out to your friends and neighbors and unbelieving family, it is important for us as Christians, it is critical for us as believers to have close to our hearts an understanding of what the day of the Lord is. And it's simply this, according to Obadiah, a day is coming when what you have done to others will be done to you. The Lord will have His day when He repays everyone. And He repays everyone according to the metric that they have used on others. See, this is the idea of retributive justice. It is retribution. It is the Lord repaying all people for all the sins that they have committed. And in the case of this violation of this holy place and the holy mountain as pagans sat around feasting, mocking God's people. The Lord says, As you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow. And it shall be as though they had never been. In the Old Testament and in the New, we see repeatedly that there is a focus upon this idea of the cup. Not the cup for communion, but the cup of God's wrath that He pours out upon the people for their sins. We see this in the book of Psalms. We see this in Isaiah, Jeremiah, in the New Testament, in Matthew, and in John's Gospel, and in the book of Revelation. So it's not a small or minor theme. The day of the Lord is the day when the way that you've judged others will fall back upon you. But it's also the day when all your sins 
will require punishment and you will be required to drink down God's righteous and holy wrath against your personal sins. And so we read in Psalm 75, 8, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and He pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Jesus said to the Apostle Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And see, friends, for us who love the Bible, who love the Old Testament, who see what the cup represents in the Old Testament, we love whenever we read Jesus' words. Because the cup that should have been ours, that we should have drank down for our sins, was given over to King Jesus. And through His death on the cross, He drank that cup in full. He drained it down to the dregs for you and for me and for all of His children. But the day of the Lord, and for those who are not in Christ and protected by His blood, that day is an awful day. Friends, I cannot tell you how much it grieves me, and I've heard it on more than one occasion. When someone has looked me in the face and honestly said, when it comes to meeting the Lord, well, I know I always haven't done everything right. I know I've failed. I know I've done some things wrong. But the Lord knows my heart. Oh, friends, the foolishness of such a statement the self-deception that would come out of a person's mouth. For the Lord Jesus tells us in Matthew 12, 34 that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. These people who've told me that, probably you've heard that as well in your own life, they mean it. They think that it's going to add to their cause that the Lord sees the intention of their heart. And they think that those intentions are noble and pure, are better than the actions that they have committed outwardly. But we know the truth, friends. We know the truth about the human heart, about the human condition. Ecclesiastes 9.3 tells us that in the heart of men is madness. It is full of evil. Many other passages tell us as well that the heart is what's the problem. Our hearts before a holy and a perfect God. The God who Proverbs 15.3 tells us sees all things. The eyes of the Lord are in every place keeping watch on the evil and the good. It's a song I heard many times growing up. My parents are over here today so I can uh, reference that. The eyes of the Lord are in every place keeping watch on the evil and the good. That God who sees it all he sees your heart. He sees your actions. And all, all, not some, but all that you have done to others, all the ways you have judged them, will fall upon you on the day of the Lord. That cup is being filled up with the consequences that men and women, image bearers of the living God, will endure for all eternity apart from Jesus Christ. 
here in Obadiah, the cup of God's wrath is connected to the day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord, when what's done to others by you will be brought back on your head. The day of the Lord, when the cup of God's righteous and holy wrath falls upon you and upon all people of all nations. The day of the Lord is also a day when God's people will be vindicated. It is a day for God's people of great and glorious hope. And that brings us to our final phrase that is connected with the day of the Lord, and that is the kingdom shall be the Lord's. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. Look at Obadiah 21, the very last verse of this short book. Savior shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. To grasp more fully what is intended by this phrase, the kingdom shall be the Lord's, we need to look back at Obadiah 17 and 18. I wonder though, before we go there, what you think of when you hear the word kingdom. When I think of kingdom, I think of playing Legos growing up. I think of like the castle, this kind of a thing, knights. I'm not sure what you think of whenever you hear the word kingdom. But the kingdom is another important theme throughout the Scriptures that we as Christians must be familiar with, must be quick to give an answer to, filled with hope, filled with gentleness and respect. When you hear the word kingdom, we as Christians are to think of power, authority, rulership, particularly a royal, righteous rulership from the Lord. Graham Goldsworthy puts it this way, The kingdom of God is when God's people are in God's place under God's rule and blessing. God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And as we read the Bible's storyline, we see that the whole earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. We see that the Lord is establishing on this earth what will be his kingdom? Now it's hard for us to, to fathom because we think of verses where Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. The reality is that when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, he will make all things new. But as many have pointed out, he will not make all new things. What he's going to do is bring, through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the work of new birth, through the work of His righteous rule over the hearts of men and women over all creation, He is going to establish His kingdom. And what He'll do when the Lord Jesus Christ comes is establish that kingdom in full. His righteous rule over all His people, casting out all evildoers on this earth, on the new earth. And so the kingdom of God is not simply this out there idea. It is something that the Lord has brought with the coming of Jesus Christ and that He will bring to fulfillment when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. But in the context of Obadiah, look at Obadiah 17 and 18. This gives us a small microcosm into what the Lord is doing when it comes to His kingdom being established. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire. 
the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. So connected to the day of the Lord is the judgment of the Lord, but is also the fact that the Lord, who is the king of the earth, will bring this justice, in this case in the house of Esau, through the house of Jacob, through the house of Joseph. Those two phrases are just the house of Jacob, the house of Joseph, just supposed to make us understand God's people. And in one sense, this in fact did happen. In history, a few decades later, after their exile, they returned to the land out of captivity. And in one sense, God established them again. But in a far more full sense, this will come when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. When all who are enemies of God, in this case the house of Esau, is who is the enemy of God. They will be burnt to nothing. They will be consumed. There will be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the house of anyone who opposes the Lord. The Lord has sent out His apostles, His preachers, His teachers, missionaries all throughout the world. And the Lord Jesus said that if you are rejected by anyone, He said to His earliest apostles as they were sent out, the judgment upon those who reject you, it would be better for Sodom and Gomorrah compared to the judgment that they'll face. See, the enemies of God, the enemies of God's people, will in fact bear their iniquities. They will in fact be punished in a, in a way far more powerfully than even Sodom and Gomorrah, that story in Genesis chapter 17, when the Lord rains down fire upon this sinful city of people. The Lord wants us to see that He is bringing His judgment through His people upon others. And to be clear, this doesn't mean we go and take matters into our own hands. The Lord, in His time, on the day when the Lord declares that, the Lord will bring this about. He is the one who accomplishes this. And it's so humbling to remember, too, who Jacob was. If we go back to the beginning of this message, Jacob was the one who grasped at the heel of Esau. Jacob's name means deceiver. He was a trickster. That's what he was. Jacob didn't deserve this place of privilege. He did not deserve any of this, neither do any who were part of his house. There was nothing good in him, and yet God declares that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that the Lord rescues his own, but also that God accomplishes his purposes, in many cases his righteous judgment upon his enemies through his people. There shall be no survivors for the house of Esau. Part of the kingdom of God spreading is the people who are the enemies of God being removed. But if you're anything like me, as we're reading this text, it's hard not to think, well, where do I fit in this category? Hopefully you're very clearly in Christ. You believe in Jesus Christ. But if you're here today and you aren't sure, you're not sure if you're an enemy of God, or you're part of the people of God. I want to be very clear 
This is the way the Bible divides us up. There are those who are under God's wrath and there are those who are under God's favor. There are the enemies of God and the friends of God. There are those at war with God and at peace with God. And 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 11 tells us, God has not destined us, that is those of us who are in Christ, to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. How can that happen? It's because Jesus died for us. It's because on that cross, as we saw earlier, Jesus took that cup of the wrath of God and He drank it down. It's because in Jesus Christ, for us, we have not guilty, innocent as the verdict over our lives. And even though we do fall short of God's glory, we do still struggle with sin, we are not perfect. We have not arrived. The reality is that for those of us who are in Christ, it is a completely different approach to God. We go to Him as those who know, God, we are utterly casting ourselves on Your mercy. There is no difference between us and the most vile sinner in the world except Jesus Christ. And I wonder if you believe that. I wonder if you believe that the deception of your own heart makes you an enemy of the Almighty God. I wonder if you believe that there is a reckoning, a day coming when God will punish all evil. I wonder if you believe in your heart of hearts that the Lord is establishing His kingdom on the earth even now as the gospel spreads, even now as men and women and boys and girls by the millions, by God's grace, by the millions, are coming and trusting in Jesus Christ alone and crying out for the mercy that is found in Him alone and being transferred away from this kingdom of darkness and judgment and wrath and over to this kingdom that will never end where God's blessing abounds. I wonder if you truly believe that this day of the Lord is coming. I wonder if you believe that the kingdom of God will be fulfilled, that Jesus Christ has established His kingdom when He came on earth. What did He say? One of His earliest sermons, His earliest messages out of His mouth was repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. And that is an announcement to all people of all nations that Jesus Christ is establishing His righteous reign, His righteous rule, and all who look upon Him and trust in His finished work on the cross who trust in His victorious resurrection, who trust in His present intercession, who stands in the gap between all of us who are sinners and Almighty God, might find safe refuge when that day comes and when God's kingdom is fully established. Oh friends, strengthen your heart today in this great hope. This great hope that yes, pride in our hearts is deceitful and it can destroy Nothing can protect you from the punishment that you will pay for your pride. But strengthen your hearts today with the hope that God's day of reckoning will come. That the Lord has said in His Word, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. I will restore your fortunes. I will restore what was lost to you. You were in exile, I will make you again to have an inheritance. Strengthen your hearts this day with the fact that the kingdom shall be the Lord's. And it will extend as far as the eye can see. Let's pray.
Almighty God and merciful Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we thank you that no matter what, the kingdom shall be yours. We praise you that you will bring perfect justice upon your enemies. And we marvel that by your grace alone, we are no longer your enemies. But that while we were your enemy, Lord Jesus, you died for us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for drinking the cup of God's wrath, that righteous wrath against our sins, and for dying to pay the penalty for our sins. God, we marvel and we praise you and thank you that you continue to protect us. And please, God, we plead with you that you would protect us from ongoing pride, that we would put this insidious sin to death and make war on it. We would not think of ourselves more highly than we ought, Oh God, we look to you as the God of all comfort, the God of all grace. We ask that your Holy Spirit would strengthen us with the hope found in Obadiah and comfort us with the peace that we know you now through Jesus Christ. God, we do not fear that day, but we long for that day when you judge the living and the dead. You put all things right and make all things new. Thank you, Lord, for hearing our prayers. We pray these all things in Jesus' name. Amen.